Shalom, shalom. Welcome, welcome, world changers. Tonight's going to be an interesting night because we're going to get into the story of Elijah. We're reading from 1 Kings chapter 17 through 21. It's going to be interesting because uh, Elijah is a very interesting character because we got Moses and Elijah, some of the top most interesting people in the Tanakh. Not that they are the only interesting people, but I would say some of the top ones. So we're going to get into something very, very interesting. Let's start with 1 Kings chapter 17. Elijah predicts drought. Verse 1, now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead. Now the footnote says here, another reading is Tishbi in Gilead, uh, said to Ahab or Ahab, as the Lord lives, the Lord or the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall certainly be neither dew nor rain during these years except by my word. Now, this is just the first verse. And I have to stop here for a moment because it's so good. It says, as the Lord lives, the God of Israel, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand. Check out these four words. Before whom I stand. Very, very important to know this because it's very, very important to, to have that kind of position and to, to understand that when you, when you walk with God, that you are not just a believer in God, but you stand before him. Before whom I stand. What does that mean? You know, in uh, in the language of, I guess you would call it uh, uh, Brother Lawrence from hundreds of years ago, he wrote a, a piece called Practicing the Presence of God. And that's exactly what this is, is all about, practicing the presence of God. Elijah was aware of the presence of God at all times. At least he was aware that he stood before God at all times. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. Wow. Powerful, powerful, powerful. Not just as the Lord God of Israel lives, uh, uh, the one in, I believe, the one that I have faith in, the one that I uh, read about or hear about. No. Before whom I I stand. Wow, that is amazing. That is amazing. To have that, to know that you are standing perpetually in the presence of God. To position yourself in that place, in His presence. To have that communion to have that security, to have that confidence, to know that it's, it's before the Lord, the God of Israel, before Him you stand. Very, very interesting. Very amazing. Verse 2, then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. And it shall be that you will drink from the brook. 
And I commanded the ravens to provide food for you there. Hmm. Another very amazing th- uh, verse because we have God. Actually, the, the ravens obey the commandments of God in this verse. The ravens heard the command of God and delivered food to Elijah. Hmm. See, God can do whatever he wants to do by whom he, whomever he wants to do it. You know, like I say, um, uh, God can use anybody, anywhere, anything. Okay. And that's the reason why, again, that's the reason why I have a variety of people on uh, live stream as guests. God can use every, God can use people that you don't even want to hear. God can use that person to speak to you. Now, it's very important that we're not to fellowship with certain people. Okay, that's one, uh, that's one thing we need to really uh, keep in mind. Fellowshipping with a certain person is actually getting more personal with them, as opposed to just hearing what they have to say and learning from them. If I could, I, you know, I can't. If I could, I'd have the ravens that fed that fed Elijah on the live stream, right? I'd have the donkey that spoke, you know, to Balaam on my live stream if I could. Okay, what do you have in these animals? These dirty animals on my live stream? What do I have? Dirty animals on the live stream? I'm sure people would bring up all kinds of objections. Uh, just like how they bring up some objections to some of the guests that I've had on. But hey, um, God speaks through many people, many ways, and many things. Verse 5, So he went and did everything according to the word of the Lord. For he he went and lived by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning. Now, here's another thing. Would you eat meat that a raven brought to you? <laughs> You'd be like, where'd you get this meat? <laughs> where'd you get this, raven? Is it kosher? Right? I mean, would you eat meat or even bread that a, that a bird brings you? Because you think about what birds eat, right? You think about all kinds of things. But and you think about, is, is that bird clean? Does that bird have worms? <laughs> Does that bird have some kind of disease? Would you eat it? But I suppose, you know, a lot of people would say, well, if I knew that God sent the ravens, well, I would, right? When you think about it. And a lot of times God sends people your way, things your way, circumstances your way. And a lot of people don't recognize it as being from God. That's another thing. We have to be ever aware. And this is the reason why, you know, the first verse where Elijah said, you know, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand. Again, what does that mean? He always kept an awareness that God is, he's ever before God and God's speaking to him and God is conversing with him and God is orchestrating his life and the circumstances in his life and the people in his life at every, every moment, waking or sleeping, before whom I stand. Verse 7, 
But it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, or Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I can... I have commanded a widow there to food for you. Okay, so it goes, you're upgrading there, Elijah. You're going from the ravens bringing food. Now a widow is bringing food. Okay, so it's, a, it's much, much better, right? For a widow to bring food to you as opposed to a raven. And you think about it. Ravens are not, you know, even, some, ravens are not clean animals, right? And so, but yet God chose a raven to feed Elijah. Very interesting. Verse 10, So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the entrance of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please give me a little water in a cup so that I may drink. As she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have no food, only a handful of flour in a bowl, in the bowl, and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks, so that I may go in and prepare it for me and my son, so that we may eat, we may eat it and die. <laughs> That's a pretty desperate situation there. And uh, you know, she doesn't have a a whole lot of hope, does she, in, in her words. Verse 13. However, Elijah said to her, do not fear. Hmm, that sounds like God, doesn't it? Do not fear. Go. Do as you have said. Just make me a little bread, a little bread loaf from it first. For, see, he's, he's, he's demanding that he serve first. You see, a lot of people would say, how dare you? How dare you? You know, you got this this widow that's on her last, you know, her last leg. She's starving to death. And, and, and it's a widow. And you are demanding that she is, you know, she makes you the, you know, from the, the last bit of food that she eat, that she has. Just make me a little bread loaf from it first and bring it out to me. And afterward, you may make one for yourself and for your son. Now, you see, uh, the way he spoke here, the way Elijah spoke was, you are going to have enough. You are going to have enough. Just serve me first. Verse 14. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, The bowl of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil become empty until the day that the Lord provides rain on the face of the earth. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Verse 15. So she went and did everything in accordance with the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. Well, there goes the, I'll eat the last little bit of, you know, bread that I, that I have and I'll die. There goes that idea. Verse 16. The bowl of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil become empty in accordance with the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. So this is right here, the first instance that we have, that we read about, apart from perhaps even, perhaps create the creation story. But 
this is the first instance where we really have the multiple, a multi, um, the multiple, the multi, no, I can't even say the word, multi, multiplication of food. Now we know that, you know, Yeshua did this as well, not in the very same, not in the very same kind of setting, but very similar. He, you know, he multiplied the food that was given to him. And so more or less kind of fulfilling what it says here about Elijah, doing what Elijah did. He multiplied the flour and the oil. So the the bowl of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil become empty in accordance with the word of the Lord spoke through Elijah. Elijah raises the widow's son. Again, this is something that we also see reflected in the Gospels about Yeshua, who also raises the widow's son, correct? Verse 17. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick, and his condition became very grave until at the end he was no longer breathing. You know what that means? Um let me just check the footnotes. Beca uh, condition became very grave. In the footnotes here, it says the illness, literally illness, became very grave. That there, there was uh, that breath was not left in him. Breath, or um, you know, in the Hebrew, it would be it would be ruach, which would be spirit, which means that he had no spirit, which means he was gone. Um, verse eighteen. So she said to Elijah, "Where, where is my business?" Excuse me. Why is my business any of yours, you man of God? Yet you have come to me to bring my wrongdoing to remembrance and to put my son to death. Now you see in these words here, she she interpreted the death of his son or her, she interpreted the death of her son to be the judgment of the Lord upon her because of Elijah's presence. Remember in that the presence of the Lord to execute judgment is not always everywhere at all times in the same way. Let me explain what I mean. In the book of Acts, you read about the judgment of God that fell upon Herod, right? And he instantly died and instantly was eaten up by worms. I mean, you also have the, um, the instant... Uh, it was like uh, God executed uh, Ananias and Sapphira instantly uh, for for their for not telling the truth. Um, now, where do you see this kind of you know where do you see these things in the church today? Now, I have heard that things like that have happened, and I I've, I've spoken about that uh, a few times in the past few months of different uh, testimonies I've heard people that have attended churches, that this kind of thing did happen. However, not very often. And I believe it's because most churches do not have the presence of God like, like the Book of Acts church did. The presence of God can mean great blessing to you or great cursing to you, depending on where you stand, depending on your position with the Lord. Okay? Look at what it says, the ark of God brought great blessing. Oh, great blessing upon the, the household of Obed-Edom. But the same ark of God brought great cursing upon 
the Philistines, while they had the Ark of God, they they were uh, tumors galore. I mean, they were they were dying. They were struck with cancer. All right, so the presence of God can mean great blessing to your life if you're in the right place with God, if you're doing the right things, if you're if you're positioned, if you position yourself properly. The blessing of God can be a great, I mean, the presence of God can be a great blessing to you and cause great blessing to come on your life. Albeit, the presence of God can also do the opposite if you're not in the right place with God. So the widow thought that the presence of God through Elijah was actually a curse to her. And that's why she said what she said. Yet you have come to me to bring my wrongdoing to remembrance and to put my son to death. Verse 19, but he said to her, give me your son. Then he took him from her arms and carried him up to the upstairs room where he was living. Imagine that. Wouldn't you like to go into the room? This is Elijah's room. I wonder what it looked like. I wonder if he had the Torah scroll open at all times. I don't know. What, what do you think he had? What was up there? What do you think it was like? Was there a cloud of glory in the room at all times? So he carried him. Wow, that would be a wonderful, that's a wonderful um, privilege to be carried by Elijah himself up to his room and laid down on his own bed. Now, that's interesting because um, Elijah was, I'm trying to word this properly. If this son was to remain dead, let's put it that way, he would have been unclean by touching this dead body, okay? And to put him on his own bed would even make it more unclean. Okay. Who would want a dead someone dead on, on your on your personal bed? But Elijah did that. Verse 20. And he called to the Lord and said, Lord, my God, have you also wrought, brought catastrophe upon the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Then he stretched out, then he stretched himself out over the boy three times called to the Lord and said, Lord, my God, please let this boy's life return to him. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. You know, that's a good sign. And the life of the boy returned to him and he revived. Elijah then took the boy and brought him down from the upstairs room into the house and gave him to his mother Elijah said, see, son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Wow, that's amazing. Let me just say a little bit more about this idea about Elijah carrying this dead man. And also about the, the, the purpose of, of this whole thing. Well, why did this happen? 
at least why did God choose to raise the boy? Uh, let's start with the first thing. The whole the whole idea about Elijah carrying, you know, touching a dead person. Um, I do not believe that that the laws regarding touching the dead would apply here because that person did not remain dead. If that person remained dead, that would have been a different story. But that person did not remain dead. Um, it's like this. Let me just go on a little bit deeper into this. This is I just want to get into a little bit deeper. I know some of you guys will be, you know, some of you guys probably listening right now is going, what are you trying to say? What's going on? What do you what do you, what do you mean by that? Why why would you say that? It doesn't make any sense. So let me explain. There, there are a lot of people today that clinically die. Now, they might clinically die just for a matter of a few seconds or a few minutes. Um but they are either brought back through resuscitation or resurrection, however you want to look at it. Um, some of them have been brought back through CPR or you know, using uh, these defib machines. Um, the laws regarding a, people who die would not apply to those people. Let me explain why I say this. In the, in the Torah, it says if a man dies, the wife is free to marry someone else. Or, the you know, if the man dies, or vice versa, right? If your spouse dies, you're free to marry someone else, right? But what if you die and you're brought back? What if you die and you're brought back to life? Many people are today, even with, mod, you know, modern medical... Um, equipment that we have, the defib machines and the CPR and all that kind of stuff. Many people have uh, been, I actually, uh, not too long ago, I spoke to a guy who said that he has actually been brought back to life 30 times. 30 times. Now, does that mean when he has his cardiac arrest and he is brought back, does that mean he goes home now and says, I'm, not, I'm sorry, honey, but I'm not married to you anymore. I'm marrying someone else now. No, that cannot. No, that's just not. It doesn't apply. It doesn't apply because the laws regarding a spouse that dies or a dead man or whatever it implies or at least assumes that that person remains dead. Okay. So it's not like, well, you know, <laughs> I had a cardiac arrest there and I had, you know, I got remarried to someone else because, hey, I mean, you know, and my spouse did too. And, you know, and my, my children lost their, their, their father or my children lost their mother, whatever the case is. And just because of what? Because your heart stopped for 10 seconds? No, no, <laughs> that's not right. That's not according to the word of God. That's not in, in, in tune with the Torah. In fact, now I know people could, you know, I've, I've read years ago, I've read years ago that even when you sneeze, technically you die for a split second. Now, I'm not sure all the different medical um, uh, reasoning behind that, but they say basically when, when you sneeze, your heart does stop for a, for a split second and, and you know, you're, 
I've heard it said that technically you die for a, for a split second when you sneeze. So can you imagine somebody sneezing? <laughs> Sorry, honey. I mean, we're not married anymore. I'm gone. Uh, what, what happened? Well, I died. Well, what do you mean? I, well, I sneezed. No, 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 no. The laws of death and remarriage or death and anything to do with death only applies because only applies that that person stays dead. Okay. That's, it, I mean, that's, it goes without saying. So in this instance with Elijah, the laws of touching dead, you know, corpses or whatever would not apply to him because that son did not stay dead. Especially it, since he's there through the whole process of resurrection, okay? Um, now, now the question about why did God raise the son from the dead? Because there's a lot of times, you know, God doesn't do such those kind of things. Why did God raise the son? Simply because God is a God of compassion. He's a God of love. Because in, in context, especially in cultural context, widows or fatherless, if you don't have a man in the house, if you don't have a son, okay, or a husband, you have no means of income, you, you will die. You will die. You will starve to death or something because uh, you, you don't have uh, the support you need from a man, um, a husband or a son, okay? Or perhaps if there's somebody else, like another man that would take up the, um, the responsibility of that. And so that son of hers was like, that was her lifeline. That was her lifeline. And so God knew that, of course, and that's that's one of the reasons why he raised that son. Same goes for when Yeshua raised the widow's son as well, because without that son, that widow is done. Okay, so it was an act of compassion. Some people say, well, God did miracles in the Bible just to substantiate or to, to confirm the Bible. No, not not. Far from the truth, okay? God did, does not do that uh, for that reason. God does that because he is a God of love and compassion, period. Full stop, okay? Uh, he is not behind, as I always, I've, I've, I've always said this, he is not behind Bible canon. Uh, he is not a God who has ordered anybody to to put together a Bible canon. So we, we got to get that out of our minds that a Bible canon, apart from, apart from perhaps like something like second Ezra, where it talks about, you know, 109 books. Uh, well, uh, that would be what now 90 something in, in their day. Um, I think now 94 compared to uh, the amount of books that we have today because it's, it's divided up more. Um, that talks a little bit, it doesn't really say Bible canon per se, but it does give a similar, like a little bit of an idea of that. Um, however, uh, it wasn't considered to be Bible canon as we look at it today because they still kept the scrolls in separate places up right up until the time of Yeshua's day. Actually, 
beyond that of the time of uh, the New Testament days of Yeshua, the 12 disciples, they still had the schools in separate places. There might have been, there might have been, uh, and I, you know, the concept of, okay, here are the holy writings, but not all put together in one book and, and you know, make an idol out of it. So, um, very, very interesting, this whole story of Elijah and the widow and her son. Let's continue reading. Okay, so we're on 1 Kings chapter 18. For those of you on TikTok, I am on YouTube simultaneously. I'm, do I'm doing a live right now on YouTube. If you want to see what I'm reading, go on over to my YouTube channel, Christopher Enoch. I'm sharing my screen right now. 1 Kings chapter 18. Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. Now notice, now let me just say this too. Notice how the Tanakh always makes it clear. Like it always says stuff like this. The word of the Lord came to Elijah or God spoke to Moses or thus saith the Lord or the Lord appeared to Moses or the Lord appeared to Joshua or the Lord appeared to Solomon and said thus and thus, quote and unquote, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. The reason why I'm pointing this out because there are many places in the scriptures that does not say explicitly that the Lord said anything. And so many times when it does not say that God re really spoke to somebody, perhaps he didn't. Perhaps those, you know, like again, for example, the uh, the whole idea of Jude, the book of Jude, and the, uh, the prophecy of Enoch, okay? And I'm saying this because this is something that I used to believe, okay? Uh, at least for a short period of time. I mean, I... I did what a lot of Christians do today. We know whatever is unknown, you just kind of throw it on the Holy Spirit. It's like, well, that's the Holy Spirit. You know, like, um, how did Jude know about Enoch? How did Jude know about Enoch prophesying? And how did Jude know what Enoch prophesied? And for the longest time, that really amazed me. It stumped me. I'm like, well, hey, it's in the Bible. I mean, it must have been, the Holy Spirit must have, must have shown him. God must have spoke to him and, and, and told him. But it doesn't say that. Jude never said, the Holy Spirit spoke to me, or the Lord spoke to me, or the word of the Lord came to Jude saying, or the Lord appeared to Jude, or an angel came, or anything like that whatsoever. That's because God didn't speak to Jude directly regarding Enoch's prophecy. We know that for sure now because of the um, because of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls proves that the Book of Enoch was in existence and in circulation in the Holy Land long before Jude was ever born. Think about that for a minute. Because it used to be taught in Bible schools that the book of Enoch was a fabrication, a, um, a forgery done in the name of Enoch like two or three hundred years A.D. That's what used to be taught until they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then it's like, whoop, <laughs> we're off about four to six hundred years here. Sorry about that. 
Uh, you know what? I think that the book of Enoch went, goes all the way back, at least in parts, goes all the way back to Enoch. Um, so it's very important to, you know, to know the cultural context and also to, to ask yourself again, what does this say? What does it not say? And if it does not say something, you better not interject things into it unless you have a really, really good, you know, some really good evidence to do so. So there are many times throughout the Tanakh, and I'm going to, I'm going to point this out. I'm going to point this out as we go, go through it. Actually, many times I haven't actually pointed out certain things, but you need to ask your, yourself a question. How did Moses know such and such? Like, like the creation story, for example. How did he know that? He didn't say that God spoke that to him. He didn't say that. He didn't say the word of the Lord came to me and told me about creation. He did not say that. I believe it's the evidence that we have before us in regards to the creation story is that Moses heard, knew from about the creation story at, at, from like Adam, knew about it, of course, you know, told Enoch. Enoch, Enoch and Adam, uh, they were living in the same day for part of their lives. So Enoch would have been able to speak to Adam face to face. Enoch would have been able to tell Noah or, you know, the, some of these other patriarchs. And then down the line, Noah tell Abraham and Abraham tell, you know, and so on and so forth. It wouldn't be that many hands from Adam to Moses. So you got to be careful. Don't don't throw everything in the same boat. Don't throw everything in the same bag to make it overly simplistic, saying, well, it's the word of God. And so God spoke it. Well, wait a second. It doesn't say, many places it doesn't say the word of the Lord came to whoever, so-and-so, or God spoke to so-and-so. Many places it does, but many places it doesn't. So in those places that that do not say that, you have to ask a question. How did that person, how did the author of this book know about this? Did this author know about it through direct revelation? If so, why didn't the author say that? Or could it have been that the author knew about this through other means, practical means. Maybe he had a book. Maybe he had the book of Enoch before him or the book of Adam. Who knows? Uh, he, he had something there. Maybe he heard it from his father who heard it from his great-grandfather and so on and so forth. And such was passed down the line. So it's very, very important to understand that not everything it says in the scriptures comes from directly from the mouth of God. The things that are in quotations, I believe, I believe to be exactly, to believe, you know, if it says God, you know, God spoke to Moses and said, comma, quote, unquote. To me, that's the word of God. That's what actually, that's what God actually said. That's what he actually spoke. That's his word. That's not what Moses said. That's not what Job said. That's not what Elihu said. That's what God said. That's the quote and unquote. Thus saith the Lord. Quote, 
unquote. That is the word of God. Just like how we're going to read right here. 1 Kings chapter 18. Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Now, there is very, very explicit here. This is not, this is directly from the Lord. In the third year, saying, quote, this is what I'm talking about, quote, go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will provide rain on the face of the earth, unquote. So, where's the word of God in this passage? It's right here. Right here. The rest of it is, 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 narr is narration. The rest of it is narration. The word of God is what came out of the mouth of God. Thanks for the likes over there on TikTok. Yeah, and if you like talking about these kind of things, if you like these kind of Bible studies or fellowships, please make sure you like. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 2. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, or Ahab. Uh, now, the famine was severe in Samaria. Ahab summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of the household. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. Well, God bless Obadiah. Then Ahab said to Obadiah, go, now this right here, right? Quote and unquote. So is this the word of God? This is the word of Ahab. This is what Ahab said. This is not what God said. This is, this is what Ahab said. Ahab said to Obadiah, quote, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the river valleys, perhaps we will find grass and keep the horses and mules alive and will not have to kill some of the cattle, unquote. So they divided the land between them to survey it. Ahab went one way by himself and Obadiah went another way by himself. Now, as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. Oh, wouldn't you like to go on your way and have Elijah meet you? That would be a great blessing, wouldn't it? And he recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, Elijah, my master? Again, this is the word of Obadiah. That's not the word. That's not what God spoke. That's what Obadiah spoke. And he said to him, It is I. Go say to your master, Behold, Elijah is here. But he said, what sin have I committed that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to put me to death? As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom to which my master has not sent word to search for you. And whenever they, whenever they say he is not here, he makes the kingdom or nation swear that they, that they could not find you. Yet now you are saying, go say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. Here. And it will come up, it will come about when I leave you that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you to where where I don't know, uh, I do not know. Um, so when I come and inform Ahab that and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Though I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been reported to my master that I what I did when 
Jezebel, Isabel killed the prophets of the Lord, that I hid a hundred prophets by the uh, of the Lord by fifties in a cave, and provided them with bread and water. Yet, yet now you are saying, "Go say to, say to your master, behold, Elijah's here. He will that he will kill me." Elijah said, as surely as the Lord of armies lives. Here we go again. Before whom I stand. Wow. Powerful. Can you imagine living your life like that? Can you imagine living your life with that kind of confidence and in that position before God? To be able to say to people, as surely as the Lord God of armies as surely as the Lord of armies lives before whom I stand. That's awesome. That's living in the presence of God. That's living in the presence of God. That is intimate communion with God. That's being aware of his presence at all times. As surely as the Lord of armies lives for whom I stand. I will certainly present myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and, and informed him. And then Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, the cause of disaster to Israel? In, in other um, um translations it says troublemaker of israel he said elijah elijah replied to him and said i have not brought disaster to israel but you and your father's house have because you have abandoned the commandments of the lord and you have followed the balls you have followed the bales now again was the commandments given just to show you how much of a sinner you are, like how modern corrupt Christianity teaches? Absolutely not. That would be absurd in this context. The commandments of the Lord were given to, to ensure that it goes well with you. Ahab, Ahab did not obey the commandments of the Lord. Therefore, he cannot ensure that everything goes well with him. That was the purpose of the, of the Torah. It was God's grace. It was God's blessing to the human race. It was God's love gift to the human race. Read Psalm 119. Read Psalm 19. Actually, read all of the Psalms. Actually, read all the Tanakh. It's there over and over and over again. The commandments of the Lord was given by the Lord to be a blessing to us. The commandments of the Lord, the Torah, was given by God so that we could hear it and obey it and be blessed. That's very, very clear. Because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals, the Baals. Now then, send orders and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel. Together, with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Isabel's or Jezebel's table. Okay. Asherah, the Asherah, 
it says here, um, wooden symbol of a female deity. Wooden, wooden, uh, wooden symbol of a female deity. Hmm. We've got things like that today, don't we? It doesn't necessarily take the form of a wooden thing, though. It's something that you see probably on TV or in magazines or on the Internet. First Kings chapter 18, verse 20. So Ahab sent orders among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Notice that uh, Ahab, Ahab did not try to kill Elijah. Um, notice he must have been shaken. He must have been shaken by what Elijah said to him and by the demeanor and the spirit and the presence of Elijah in order for him to actually obey Elijah. In order for him to obey Elijah as if he was Elijah's servant. Verse 21. Then Elijah approached all the people and said, how long are you going to go with the two choices? If the Lord is God, Follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him so much as a word. Hmm. Well, at least they did something, right? They could have did other things. Verse 22, And Elijah said to the people, I alone am left as a prophet of the Lord, while Baal's prophets are 450 men. So in other words, look at guys. Here we have one to 450. Okay. Here we have, here we have a um, face-off. We have a face-off here. We have a battle. 450 to one. That's pretty confident. Verse 23. Now have them give us two oxen. In other words, you know what? They can choose it. Have them. Have them give us two oxen. They can choose it. Let them choose it. Yeah, just so, that, just so they're not going to, you know, make up excuses to what God is going to do. Now have them give us two oxen and have them choose the one ox for themselves and cut it up. And place it on the wood and put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood. And I will not put fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God. And I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answered fire, he is God. And all the people replied, that is a good idea. Yeah, it certainly is. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose the one ox for yourselves and prepare it first, since there are many of you, and, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under the ox. Then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it. And they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. Yes, 
But there was no voice, no, and no one answered. And they limped about the altar which they had made. In the footnotes, in a type of ceremonial dance. So they had their own little Baal dance going on there. They limped about the altar which they had made. In some of the manuscripts and ancient versions, the Masoretic text says he had made. Verse 27. And at noon, Elijah ridiculed them and said, Call out with a loud voice, since he is a god. Undoubtedly, he is attending to business. In other words, he might be in the restroom. I don't know. Is he on? I mean, it's on the way. He's pretty slow, but he might be on the way. Or is, is on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep and will awaken. Just a little bit louder, guys. Wake him up, okay? Wake him up. So they cried out with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out on them. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered and no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come forward to me. Remember, this is 1 verses 450. So all the people came forward to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Then Elijah took 12 stones, corresponding to the, the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. yud heh wow heh And he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two measures of seed. Two measures of seed in the footnotes. Uh, he, Hebrew seahs. Uh, one seah equals about seven qu quarts or 7.7 .7 liters. So that would be about 14, um, 14 qu quarts. Then he laid out the wood and he cut the ox in pieces and placed it on the wood. And he said... Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. Then he said, do it a third time. So they did it a third time. The water flowed around the altar and he also filled the trench with water. The trench was with water. Everything was drenched with water. Then, at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, now Elijah timed it out perfectly, Elijah the prophet approached and said, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that this people may know that you, Lord, are God. 
that you have turned their heart back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell on their faces and they said, Lord, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah said to them, Squeeze, or excuse me, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Okay. Um, now, before we go into the next story, I want to say a couple things about this. Um, couple things. That story was the fulfillment of the name of Elijah, right? The, the name of Elijah in, in the Hebrew, Eliyahu, um, means Yahu or Yah is God. And so you'll find this, you'll find this pretty much all the time throughout the entirety of Scripture. The name of a person is fulfilled in their lifetime, right? So Moshe, Moses, you know, drawn out of the water, which he wasn't only drawn out of the water as a baby, but he also brought the children of Israel through the water, through the Red Sea. The whole story of the of the Exodus. And so, um, I mean, we can go through all the names. I don't want to, I don't want to go into all that tonight. But you think about it. You look at you look up the the meaning of each one of these names, and you see how they have fulfilled their name, the meaning of their name in their lifetime. And this is the fulfillment of the meaning of Eliyahu, of Elijah, that Yah is God. And so that's one thing we should keep in mind. That was, This is basically the perhaps the, the um, what would you call it, pinnacle or the, um, uh, the most, the uh, height of, the climax of the, of the whole life of Elijah was here in this story. Also, notice that it says that God answered by fire, but Baal, or the Baals, did not answer by fire. It was, it's by the consumption of the sacrifice by fire that, that the Lord is known as God. Now, this is very, very deep. I'm going to try to convey it in the most simple form possible, in the most simple way possible. Today, there's a great need for people to know who God is, to know that, that the Lord is God, that God exists, that God is powerful that God answers prayer, that God is really there, that the Lord is God. There's a great need for that. And I've said it many times that the portrayal of Yeshua in many people, in many churches and in the way that people believe of Jesus, of who he, you know, who Jesus was, 
They, they don't really believe in the biblical Jesus. They don't believe in the historical Jesus. They believe in, in the modern corrupt Christian Jesus, which is almost like a golden calf. I've said this before. It's a golden calf or it's like a Baal. It's like a Baal. You know, the word Baal means Lord. Um, and so it's really important to know that this particular story gives us the keys to proving that God, that the Lord is God, that our God, yod heh wow -He, say Yahweh or Yahuwah or whatever, however you want to pronounce, or how, if you don't want to pronounce, Hashem, whatever. To me, you know, it's God knows, right? So there's a great need today for people to have, for people to know what is really God. Who really holds the power? And the key to that, the key to solving that problem is the consumption of the sacrifice. Now, no, we're not going to be cutting up oxen or, you know, uh, uh, any kind of animals, but it's the sacrifice. It's our sacrifice. It's the sacrifice of our lives, figuratively speaking. It's the, gr the greatest the greatest evidence that our God is God is the consumption of the sacrifice. Let me explain a little bit more. The greatest evidence that we have for the world of the existence of God, not only, not only the existence of God, but of the power of God, and that our God is above all gods, is that he answers by fire and consumes the sacrifice wholly and completely. There are many people who go to church and they, they have never been consumed by the fire of God. They have never laid their lives down on the altar. They have never been truly born again. There, has, there are many people most people that go to church today, they don't know the power of God. Their God is not God because they, they have no proof. It's like the Baals. It's like they can be crying out and praying all the time and, and God won't answer them. But the greatest evidence for the world is the consumption of the sacrifice. There's nothing greater. I mean, you can show them, you, you can argue about whatever, all these scientific things. You can argue your face, you can argue your face off. You can argue, you can argue to your blue in the face, you know how they say. But nothing beats, nothing beats it when somebody comes to the plat to the plate and says, I am a new person. I mean brand new. Like instantly. And completely. I'm not talking about gradually, because you know they, you know, Baal, the prophets of Baal, they could gradually burn piece by piece over a period of you know we weeks or months. They can do. We're talking about instant fire. It's available today. There's nothing more powerful than someone who comes up, who, someone who's come, you know, comes to the plate and says, 
God instantly and completely set me free from drinking, smoking, drugs, drug addiction, sexual addiction, filthy mouth, and completely changed my heart instantly. When the fire consumed me, when the fire consumed the sacrifice, that is the sign of Elijah. That's the sign of Elijah. It says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. The blood of the lamb has to be applied. The blood of the lamb really, the blood of the lamb speaks of death, death to sin. Right? So you cannot just claim the blood if you don't have the actual practical evidence of it. The practical evidence of it would be, hey, you know what? I'm a brand new person. I used to be a totally different person. I used to be in the kingdom of darkness and all of a sudden, boom, the lights came on and it was bright. Instantly and completely set free from sin. That is the most powerful evidence. I mean, you can you can argue with atheists about the the formation or the uh, the uh, the human eye and 137 million light sensitive and color sensitive cells within the human eye. You can argue all the all you can argue for the rest of your life about all this kind of stuff. But you come up to somebody and you say, you know what? I used to be someone who was addicted to tobacco, alcohol, drugs, or even, you know, I used to be addicted to certain magazines or certain websites, if you know what I mean. And I used to be a person who was more, I used to be a selfish person. I used to live for myself and gratification of myself. But in, when God, God came in my life, when the fire fell, I was consumed. I laid myself on the altar and God consumed me. Now I'm a brand new person. I'm not at all the person I used to be. There is no greater evidence than that. That's what this story is all about. That's the deeper meaning of this story. That's the deeper meaning of this story. Churches need to need need this kind of stuff. They need to have, you know, uh, regular testimonials. Instead of their, you know, singing a few hymns and singing a few hers and they're so cold in the church, they skate up and down the aisles and shaking the pastor's hand on the way. Oh, good pastor, wonderful pastor sermon. They don't even know what it was. I mean, or they forget all about it by the time they get to the door. No, there needs to be testimonials of people who have who say, you know what? I am a completely different person. God flood in my life. The fire of God came in my life. I, 
I'm not the same person as I used to be. Completely changed my heart instantly and completely. Santa Claus can't do that. The Easter Bunny can't do that. It's a powerful, powerful story. And this is what we need to do, right? We need to be kind of like Elijah, each and every one of us. We need to be kind of like Elijah and in showing the world, showing even the church, the true God, the God who consumes by fire. The God who consumes by fire. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 41. Now Elijah said to Ahab, or Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but, but Elijah went up to the top of Mount of Carmel. And he bent down to the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. So he went, he went up and looked, but he said, There is nothing. Yet Elijah said, go back seven times. This happened seven times. Reminds me of uh, the book of James, right? The effectual fervent prayer. Fervent prayer, seven times. Of a righteous man avails much. Actually, James spoke about this, didn't he? Actually, you know what? Let's go over there. James 5.13, is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, uh, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he has committed, if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elias, or Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three, three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Okay, so the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, we see that, right? Seven times. Seven times. Go check to see if there's any rain clouds coming. Seven times. Verse 44, and when he returned the seventh time, behold, and said, behold, a cloud as small as a person's hand is coming up from the sea. And Elijah said, go up, say to Ahab, Ahab, harness your chariot horses and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. <laughs> Meanwhile, the sky became dark with clouds and wind came, wind came up. And there was a heavy shower, and Ahab, Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, Yisrael. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he belted his cloak around his waist and outran Ahab to Jezreel. Hmm. There you go. I mean, Elijah must have had the strength or the power, uh, like supernatural, just like Samson, right? To, to outrun uh, the king with his chariots and horses. 
Amazing. First Kings chapter 19. Elijah flees from Jezebel or Isabel. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and now and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more so if by about this time tomorrow I do not make your life like the life of one of them. And he was afraid and got up and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom, a broom tree and asked for himself to die and said, Enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then he lay down and fell asleep under a broom tree. But behold, there was an angel touching him and said, and said to him, Arise, eat. You gotta wonder, I gotta wonder, like, did did he really die? Did he arise? Just wondering. Verse 6, and he looked, and behold, there was at his head a round loaf of bread baked on hot coals and a pitcher of water. So he so he ate and drank and lay down again. Uh, see, I mean, he's, it's getting better and better as time goes on, right? First, we got the raven feeding him. Then we got the widow feeding him. Now we got an angel feeding him. Verse 7. But the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too long for you. So he arose, ate and drank, and he journeyed in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Very interesting. So what is this saying here? This is saying that he did exactly what Moses did and Yeshua did. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. That's what it says. It's basically what it means. Right. So, so he ate. And then he, well, it was like angel's food, basically, right? The angel brought him that food or made him that food. And the, he journeyed in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Elijah at Horeb. Then he came to a cave and spent the night there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, and I have been very zealous for the, the God of armies. For the sons of Israel have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. And they, and they have sought to take my life. So he, it's God, said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and powerful wind was tearing out the mountains and breaking the rocks in pieces before the Lord. Notice, you know what? Let me just say this. I want to say this before I go on. Do you feel like sometimes your life is in, like there's a storm? Sometimes you have to go through the storm in order to get to God. 
Thanks again for the likes over there on TikTok. Sometimes you have to go through a storm in order to get to God. Don't let it, don't let it, uh, don't stop in, in the storm. Keep going. But the Lord was not in the wind. Remember it says in the Psalms that there's a thick darkness around him, around God. You think about this for a minute. God is a brilliant light. I believe so brilliant that no human language can convey the brilliance of the light of God. However, the light of God, God it lives, it's like there's thick, thick darkness around him. So sometimes you have to go through the darkness in order, in order to get to the light. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. Or as it says in the King James, as a still small voice. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in, in his cloak and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. I'd be hiding in a cave too if all that stuff was going on. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of all armies for the sons of Israel have abandoned your covenant torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword and I alone am left and they have sought to take my life and the Lord said to him go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus and when you have arrived you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram you shall also anoint Yehu, the son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And you shall anoint Ali, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Mahola, as prophet in your place. And it shall come, it shall come about that one, the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Yehu shall be put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Yehu, Elisha, shall put to death. Excuse me. I said Yehu shall, shall be put to death. No. Yehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Yehu, Elisha, shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing, with twelve yokes of oxen in front of him, and he with the twelfth. And Elijah came over to him and threw his cloak on him. Then he left the oxen behind and ran after Elijah and said, Please, let me kiss my father and my mother. Then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back for what have I done to you? In the footnotes. So as to influence Elisha's decision. 
Verse 21. So he returned from following him and, and took, a, took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and cooked their meat with the implements of the oxen and gave it to the people as they ate. Then he got up and followed Elijah and served him. 1 Kings chapter 20. War with Aram. Now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered all his army, and there were 32 kings with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and fought against it. Then he sent messengers to the city of Ahab, or Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, This is what Ben-Hadad says. Your silver and your gold are mine. Your most beautiful wives and children are also mine. And the king of Israel replied, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours as well as all that I have. Then the messengers returned and said, Hadad says this, I did, I did indeed send word to you, saying, You shall give me your silver, your gold, your wives, and your children. But about this time tomorrow, I will send my servants to you, and they will search your house and the houses of your servants. And they will take in their hands everything that is pleasing to your eyes and take it all away. Then the king of Israel summoned all the elders of the land and, and said, Please be aware and see that this man is looking for trouble. For he has sent, he has sent me his demand for my wives, my children, my silver, and my gold, and did not refuse him. Then all the elders and all the people said to him, do not listen nor consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king everything that you, that you sent as a demand to your servant at the first, I will do. But this thing I cannot do. Then the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent word to him and said, May the gods do so to me and more so if the dust of Samaria will be enough for handfuls for all the people who follow me. Then the king of Israel replied, Tell him, He who straps on his weapons had better not boast like one who takes them off. And when Ben-Hadad heard this message, while he was drinking with the kings in the temporary shelters, he said to his servants, Take your positions. So they took their positions against the city. Now behold, a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, and said, This is what the Lord says. Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I am going to hand them over to you today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. But Ahab said, By whom? So he said, The Lord says, the Lord says this, By the young men of the leaders of the prophets. Then he said, who will begin the battle? And he said, you will. So he mustered the, the young men of the leaders of the provinces, and there were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people, all the sons of Israel, 7,000. They went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the temporary shelters with the 32 kings who were helping him. The young men of the provinces went out first, and Ben-Hadad 
sent out scouts and they reported to him saying, men have come out of Samaria. Out from Samaria. Then he said, If they have come out for peace, take them alive. For if they have come for war, or if they have come for war, take them alive as well. So these men went out from the city, the young men of the leaders of the provinces, and the army which followed them, and they and they killed each one his man, and the Arameans fled, and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, escaped on a horse with the horsemen. The king of Israel also went out and struck the horses and chariots and killed the Arameans in a great slaughter. Then the prophet approached the king of Israel and said to him, Go, show yourself courageous and be aware and see what you have to do. For at the turn of the year, the king of Aram will march out against you. Now the servants of the king of Aram said to him, Their gods are gods on the mountains. For that reason, they were stronger than we. But let us fight them in the plain, and we will certainly be stronger than they. Carry out this plan. Remove the kings, each from his place, and put governors in their place. And muster an army like the army that, that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot, then we will fight against them in the plain, and we will certainly be stronger than they. And he listened to the voice, to their voice, and did so. So at the turn of the year, Ben-Hadad mustered the Arameans and went up to Afak to fight against Israel. And the sons of Israel were mustered and given provisions, and they went to meet them. And the sons of Israel camped opposite them like two little flocks of goats, while the Arameans filled the country. Then a man of God spoke to the king of Israel and said, This is what the Lord says. Since the Arameans have said, The Lord is a God of the mountains, he will not, but he is not the God of, a God of the valleys, therefore I will hand over to you all this great multitude, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So they camped one up other for seven days. And on the seventh day, the battle was joined, and the sons of Israel killed of the Arameans a hundred thousand foot soldiers in a single day. But the rest fled Afak into the city, and the wall fell on 27,000 men who were left. And Ben-Hadad fled and came into the city, going from one inner room to another. But his servants said to him, Behold now. We have heard that the kings of Israel, um, that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads and go out to Israel. Perhaps he will let you live. So they put sackcloth around their waists and ropes on their heads and came to the king's room and said, Your servant Ben Hadad says, Please let me live. And Ahab said, Is he still alive? He is my brother. Now the men took this on as a, as a good omen and quickly accepted it from him. They said, Your brother Ben-Hadad? Then he said, Go bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he had him mount the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, 
the cities which my father took from your father I will restore, and you can make streets for yourself in Damascus, as my father made in Samaria. Ahab said, I will let you go with this covenant. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. Now a man from the sons of the prophets said to another by the word of the Lord, Please strike me. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not listened to the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you leave, a lion will kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. Then he found another man and said, Please strike me. And the man struck him, injuring him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed by, he cried out to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a man turned aside and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. For if any reason he goes missing, then your life shall be forfeited in place of his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. Now while your servant was busy here and here and there, he disappeared. And the king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself determined it. Then he quickly took the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him, and he was one of that he was one of the prophets. And the prophet said to him, This is what the Lord said, Since you have let from your hand the man I had designated for destruction, your life shall be forfeited in place of his life, and your people in place of his people. So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and furious and came to Samaria. First Kings chapter 21. Now it came about after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. And Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard so that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is close beside my house, and I will give you a better vineyard in place of it. For if you prefer, if you prefer, I will give you what is what it is worth in money but naboth said to ahab the lord bid me that i would give you the inheritance of my fathers so ahab entered his house sullen and furious because of the answer that naboth the Jezreelite, had given to him since he said i will not give you the inheritance of my fathers and he lay down on his bed and turned his face away and ate no food but Jezebel, or Isabel, Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, How is it that your spirit is so sullen that you are not eating food? And he said to her, It's because I was speaking to Naboth, the Israelites, and saying to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it pleases you, I will give you a, a vineyard in place of it. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Isabel, Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you now do you now reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread, let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Israelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his 
seal and sent the letter to the elders and to the nobles who were living in Naboth in his city. Now she had written in the letter saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two worthless men opposite him and have them testify against him, saying, You cursed you cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the men of his city, the elders and the nobles who lived in, in his city, did just as Isabel, Jezebel uh, had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters in which she had sent them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the table. Then the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men testified against him, saying, Naboth, before, before the people, saying, excuse me, the worthless men testified against him, against Naboth, before the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Isabel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth for uh, the, uh, the, the Israelites, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab got up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Israelite, to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. And you shall speak to him, saying, this, this is what the Lord says. Have you and also taken possession? Have you, and you shall speak to him, saying, uh, The Lord says this. In the place where the dogs licked, licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, your blood, yours as well. And Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, enemy of mine? And he answered, I have found you, because you have given yourself over to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I am bringing disaster upon you, and I will utterly sweep you away, and will eliminate Ahab from Ahab every male, both bond free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahiah. Because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger, and because you have misled Israel into sin. The Lord has also spoken of Jezebel, Jezebel saying, The dogs will eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel. The one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And the one who dies in the field, the birds of the sky will eat. There certainly was no one like Ahab who gave himself over to do evil in the sight of the Lord. 
because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. He also acted very despicably in, in following idols, conforming to everything that the Amorites have done, whom the Lord drove out from the sons of Israel. Yet it came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted. Again, sackcloth is like it's burlap pretty much. It's it's the most uncomfortable of all materials, fabrics, if you will, if you will. So he people would do this um for to afflict themselves, uh, humble themselves. Can you imagine wearing burlap? <laughs> yeah, that would be quite uncomfortable. So he put on sackcloth and fasted and lay in sackcloth. Uh, I don't know how much sleep you can get with that. And went about despondently. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. I will bring the disaster upon his house in his son's days. And so that concludes the reading for tonight. I'll get into the um, comments here in just a moment. Um, so uh, let me just let me just double check something here. Tomorrow night is going to be super interesting. I uh, one of my one of my most favorite stories it's not I, I can't say it's the favorite my my favorite story but it's one of the most and that is the story of Micaiah I say that we are living in the days of Micaiah we are living in the days of Micaiah um, so yeah very very interesting um, We are living in the days of Micaiah. I will explain that tomorrow. Okay, let me see what we have in the comments. Uh, just give me a second here. Bibi says, Shalom everyone. Shalom Bibi. Welcome. Good to see you. Uh, says, Bless the, bless the word being spoken today and blessings to all. Thank you very much. And blessings multiplied back to you. Will Sr. says Shalom. Erlin says Shalom. The Great Deception says Shalom, everyone. Just got home from work. Shalom, 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 everyone. Good to see you guys. Good to see you guys. Blessings multiplied to you guys. Let's see what we have here. Question for move says. There's this word, there's this sword I want, a replica of the sword, of a sword from a show, but the user in the show of the sword has red flags. He owns what called a devil 
devil fruit, his sword is considered cursed. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to be... I think I would leave that sword alone. Corey says, hello, everyone. Hello, Corey. Welcome. Welcome. Good to see you. And my apologies if I don't get to your comment. Uh, some of them I might not get to it if you don't have at Christopher in it. Psalm 119. Callie, welcome. Good to see you. Blessings multiplied to you. Says, I just got caught up on your TikToks, Christopher. In one of them, you mentioned the contradiction slash inaccurate English in the verse Paul wrote about seed. Sometimes repetition is very good and helpful. Because it just clicked in my head what you were what you were what you were saying. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Thank you very much. And I've heard you talk about it a few times now. Uh, sometimes it takes a minute to click. Yeah, you know, I found the same thing. Sometimes he and this is you know, you're reading the scriptures as well. It's like you're reading the Bible, or you're reading something, any any I remember, you know, I remember one time sitting down and reading like a a book of the Bible, and I read over it. I think it was, I don't know how many times I read over it, like all in one sitting. I read over it, read over it, read over it, read over it. Every time I read over it, I got something, I got something new. Um, Naboth loved God and, and refused to sell his inheritance, unlike Esau and others. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Can you imagine? That was Esau. Esau would have, would have sold it for sure. Or Judas. Lance says, I'm a Catholic Christian, so I can't say I agree with everything you say, Chris, but I have great respect for you, and you've really opened my mind to a lot of things. Well, thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you very much. Going Nowhere says, uh, I have to ask, what is your favorite story when it comes to Scripture? Oh, I can't. I, I, that, I can't answer that one because it's like, you know, it's like, again, I feel like a little boy in a candy shop. Like, what's your favorite candy here? Uh, there's so much of it. There's so much of it. Um, I, I, I can't really answer that. I mean, they're all, they're all, it's all good. Um, yeah, I, I can't say there's anything that, that there's, you know, that it's like on the top of my list for me. All right, so you don't have any more questions or comments. I'll wrap it up here. Just kind of quickly glancing through it again. Lance, um, again, you know this is this is a this, if I if I have a list of like the top five questions that people ask, this is always one of them. And and so I, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail with this. Um, I, I, let me just touch on it again seeing that uh, Callie talks about repetition, but I'm not going to get into too much of it right now. Um, I have Lance. If you actually go into my uh, previous videos, um, especially on YouTube, not so much on TikTok, some on TikTok, but more on YouTube, I have spoken about this quite extensively. So, um, so a lot of this, a lot of the, a lot of the, um, the thing surrounding Trinity is, is, is a lot of it is, is semantics. So, okay. I'll put it, I'll put it in a way that, um, you can, you can get, and that is 
Jesus is not the Father, okay? He's not the Father. Um, when he said something like, um, in the book of John or the gospel of John, you say in the gospel of John is another, that's another whole, like that's another whole topic, right? Um, in and of itself. Again, I have, I have a video on the gospel of John, but much of the Trinity comes from the gospel of John and from the letters of Paul. You don't hear, you don't see too much of it at all in the, in the synoptic gospels or anything like that in through the rest of scripture, um, with, with the possible exception of, uh, in Isaiah, where it says, um, uh, let me just let me just quickly pull it up. But let's just say, um, Gospel of John. Gospel of John has a lot of problems. Again, I'm not going to get into that. Just check that video out uh, that I several weeks ago. I did that video on the Gospel of John. But assuming, let's say, everything that the Gospel of John said is exactly what Yeshua said, which if if Yeshua actually did say all that stuff then why didn't Matthew, Mark, or Luke think about it or put it down or consider it to be worthy to be even mentioned, which they didn't mention any of it in their in their biographies. But um, something like once you, you know, if you, if you seen, if you, if you see me, you've seen the father, right? So how I interpret that is like how you can look at a, you can look at a boy and say, you know, every time I look at that boy, I see his father. When I, when I look at him, I see his father, right? Not that he is his father, but rather he is like the image of his father or like he, um, he behaves like his father. Okay. Um, and one, I'm just going to quickly touch on this. I won't just spend a couple minutes on Isaiah chapter nine, verse six. This would be about probably the only, perhaps the only time in throughout the rest of scripture remember that the first century church the new testament church even into the second century uh in at least the first half of the second century um they didn't have a new testament they didn't have any kind of new testament uh that was canonized or considered to be holy word of god scripture they based all of their doctrine on the Tanakh, which which is what most Christians call the Old Testament. And so every concept that they teach or taught would have to be derived from the Tanakh. Perhaps there is, I just can't think of it right now, if there's any other place in the Tanakh that could be, I say could be, derived uh, and interpreted in a Trinitarian kind of way. It could, it, it, it may be this particular passage, but let me just, let me just go into this uh, as well. Uh, Isaiah 9, 6. Um, well, let me just, let me just do so. Isaiah 9, 6. Most, well, most if not all, um, New Testament believers, they use the Septuagint or something very close to the Septuagint um, for their for their text. So the Septuagint reads like this, for unto us a child is born, or for unto us, excuse me, 
I'm just, I got the other one memorized so much. For a child is born unto us, and a son is given to us, whose government is upon his shoulder, and his name is called the messenger of great counsel. For I will bring peace upon the princes and health to him. So it doesn't say mighty God in that, in that passage. Uh, and if you look it up in the original um, Hebrew, okay, this word that's translated mighty God or God here um, is a word that's actually used um, for not just God himself, but others as well. Um, such as, uh, let me just, let me just see here. Here is uh, from Jacinius, um Hebrew Chaldee lexicon, a uh, strong, mighty, or mighty one, a hero. Um, so in Ezekiel 31, 11, the mighty one of the nations is used of Nebuchadnezzar. So it's the, it's the same word, actually, that is used for Nebuchadnezzar. Does that mean Nebuchadnezzar is God? I'm sure almost everybody, if not everybody, would say no, definitely not. Um, so... Yeah, like, you got to remember that if it's not in the Tanakh, you need to, to say the least, you need to highly question it, okay? Any concept that's not in the Tanakh, talk about red flags, there should be red flags. Because it's the, it's the Tanakh that is actually the basis of the New Testament church. Uh, that's why we have someone like Paul who comes around and almost everything, almost every new concept that he brought, not new concept, but every concept that he brought out, he tried to use the Tanakh to support his doctrine, right? Because Why would he do that? Because he knew that that was the authority in his day. That was the scripture of his day. His letters were not considered to be scripture. The, the gospel of John was not considered to be scripture, Um so that's why he used the authority. He appealed to the authority of the Tanakh. So that's, that's, I'm just kind of touching on it. But again, I spoke about this many, many times. Lance, if you're, um, if you're interested, if you really want to dig into it, I, I encourage you to go into my previous videos uh, that I've done actually not that long ago, just a few months ago, uh, several times in the past few months, I, I've dealt with that. Thank you for asking, Lance. Lance says, sorry if I made you repeat yourself, but I haven't seen all your videos as of yet. Well, yeah, thank you very much, Lance, and um, I encourage you to go to watch as much as you can. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. We got one, John says, I was raised Catholic and schooled Catholic. I would never go back. And Lance says, I am converting to Catholicism. And this is the thing too, uh, Brother Pete. Welcome, Brother Pete. Uh, says, um, well, Kingdom Concepts says, Isaiah chapter 9 and 6 is not about Yeshua or Yahusha. Um, in fact, the New Testament doesn't even quote 
Isaiah 9, 6 in his book, King Hezekiah. That's a good point too. Very good point. Tower Time says, Shalom and howdy. Bless y'all, brothers and sisters. Shalom and bless you. Bless you more, brother. Yeah, I, I, I brought up Isaiah 9, 6 because I'm sure Lance probably heard this many times um, and probably will hear it many times in, in the context or you know portrayed to be that of speaking of Yeshua. Paul says, does the verse about 1 John 5, 7 confirm the Trinity? How do we harmonize that verse? I believe that verse is one of those very questionable verses that's talking about the father, the son or the father. The Yeah, it's 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 that that verse. Let me just pull it up. That is very well. I'll, I'll show you. Uh, I First uh, John, chapter five, verse seven. There are three that testify. Um, the spirit, the water and the blood. These three are in agreement. But in the footnote, it says late manuscripts of the Vulgate testify in heaven. Uh, the Father, the Word and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are uh, three that testify in earth. Not found in any Greek manuscript before the 14th century. So that passage in 1 John chapter 5 is one of those passages that I would certainly not put any weight on whatsoever. You know, seeing that you have so many different variants and in the earlier manuscripts, not even there. So it, it's quite it's quite evident to me that this is something that has been tampered with or even added to 1 John chapter 5. Check it out. Um, again, let's just check out uh, some of the other Bibles, what they say. And again, some of these Bibles have this footnote, like the N also has a footnote. It says the NU text and the M text omits the word omit the words from in heaven through on earth. Verse 8. Only four or five very late manuscripts contain these words in Greek. Okay, so basically almost everything from here, uh, all the way, the whole thing is not there in, in many of the manuscripts. Right? So, yeah, it's one of those verses that is very, um, it's a problematic verse. Just like Mark chapter 16, the whole the whole addition to Mark chapter 16. Um, I don't believe that is that is um, part of the original book at all. Same with uh, John chapter 8, the first what, 11, 11 verses or so. Uh, that's not part of the original at all either. You got to be very careful with these ones because you got someone like, like for, for example, uh, Mark, the whole addition to that you know, the last part of Mark chapter 16 that's that was added like hundreds of years after the fact by who knows who. Um, a lot of people have lost their lives because of that passage. A lot of people have believed the word of God so much that they handle snakes and scorpions and such. You know, you got these snake handling churches and, you know, you got lots and lots of people that they end up six feet under because of that. 
because of because of passages like that that are questionable. Never, never, never stake your soul or your body or anything else on verses like you know Mark sixteen, the whole part of Mark sixteen, or the woman caught in the act of adultery in John chapter eight, or this First uh, John chapter five, verses seven and eight. Thank you for asking, Paul. Um, so pre, pre kingdom concept says, uh, do you believe Ron White was a charlatan or par partially delusional? I hate to talk about someone like this, but seeing how much, <laughs> and I hate to use a, I hate to use a term like this, but it, it's true. I seeing how much misinformation, uh, has, uh, he has produced, I believe he's a very well-meaning man. I believe that he is. Uh, he believe. I believe he's very well-meaning, um, but I be, I do not believe hardly anything he says. I think that uh, he has uh, shown, proven um, many times over that um, that he's got some problems. Let me just put it that way. And so, yeah, I. Um, he doesn't prove he doesn't he didn't produce any good evidence whatsoever or very very weak evidence. I'm very careful with what I'm saying because perhaps there is some evidence that I've not seen. I've 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 seen much of the things that he has claimed and it, it's just no good. It's no good evidence. I mean, it's it's really no good. Um, and he's he's shown the mark of someone who who unfortunately was, uh, I believe was, is quite, um, had some problems. Like much of what he said doesn't really jive with anything. It doesn't jive with common sense or the scriptures or anything like that. Paul says, uh, okay, thank you. I don't understand how verses get added afterwards. Well, not only not only added, but we have literally hundreds of thousands of variants, variations of manuscripts. Um, a lot of them, I believe, again, most of those very, uh, and I'm I'm not um, I'm not exaggerating when I say hundreds of thousands within the New Testament alone. Okay, they estimate three to four hundred thousand variants within the New Testament alone. They say there are more variants in the New Testament ma ancient manuscripts than there are words of the New Testament. So I believe that for the most part, I believe that those variations and such were innocent, innocent variations, innocent mistakes that scribes have made or those who have copied uh, you see, the New Testament, what, for the most part, they weren't even, it wasn't even copied by legit scribes, right? It was just, just Christians like just, you know, Joe Blow and, you know, Mary Jane copying, you know, scripture at home uh, and passing them on to their, their, their family and friends and so on and so forth. And a good thing to, to know as well in the, in the first, how many, at least hundred years, uh, with the exception of the Marcionites, um, those passages, those books of the New Testament were not considered to be scripture, uh, holy scripture, word of God. They were just considered to be writings just like how, you know, a book of, you know, a book from pastor, 
you know, Pastor John or, you know, a book from, you know, Pastor Ed, you know, down the street. I mean, so they weren't, they weren't, people didn't uh, spend a lot of time or effort trying to be perfect in copying those books because they didn't look at it as holy word of God. They looked at it as just like, oh, yeah, this is a letter from Paul that we got, you know. Oh, with you know, this is a biography from, you know, from this no-name person. Later on, he became, you know, he he became known as John or Mark or someone like this or, you know, um, so on and so forth. So I think that that's one of the reasons why there were so, there were so many differences and variations and mistakes all kinds of things like that because of the way it was viewed. Uh, that's just one of the reasons. And there are many other reasons as well. I think that there were people who just wanted to change it because they didn't like what it said. And again, they didn't look at it as if it was the Torah. They didn't look at it as if it was the book of Isaiah. They looked at it as if it was, oh, you know, this is a book from, you know, Neil T. Anderson. Okay. So, you know, it, we don't have photocopy or printing press to copy this, so I'll just copy it out for my friend. You know, winning spiritual warfare, I'll just copy it down. Ah, I don't like this page very much. This is one thing he says here. Ah, I don't think that he really. Ah, I'll change. I'll take that out, or I'll put something. You know, I'll put something else in there. That was a common thing that was done back in those days, according to uh, Bible scholars. It was it was very common uh, to have things changed or added, or even entirely written in the name of somebody else. Like how they said Second Peter was written in the name of Peter, but it wasn't Peter that actually wrote it. Um, and there, you know, there are many, um, many reasons why they believe that. So there are many reasons why uh, these things get added, changed, that kind of thing. So I mean, if you just put, you know, I I really highly recommend that every every believer spend some time meditating on what it would be like to be living in the first century after like around the time of the book of acts or just after the fact where it's like okay there's no new testament everything they had to use the tanakh they had to use the the so-called jewish scriptures to you know to preach all of their sermons to you know to anchor all of their doctrine on on the uh, on the tanakh it had to be that's the only thing that was considered to be scripture when Paul sat down, you know, with his, I always say this, uh, where is it here again? I always say this, when Paul sit, sat down, you know, after, after his uh, missionary journeys and after he met Timothy, you know, the, you know, he sat down and thought, yeah, I want to write a letter with, I take my quill and I take some ink and I'll, I'll write a letter to Timothy. Uh, what do I need to tell him? What am I thinking? Oh yeah, get my cloak with at the house of Carpos, and that's what he said. Second Timothy chapter four, and you know, oh yeah, my my parchments. Don't forget my parchments, and go go to the household of Mark, and all the go greet Priscilla and Aquila. Okay, I mean all this stuff because it was it was just a letter from another man, and so I'm I'm sure. I'm I'm as sure as you can be. If you go back to the times of uh, Peter, James, and John, and and you go to them and say, "Hey, the Book of Galatians is scripture," It'd be like, "Book of Galatians? What are you talking about? What is the Book of Galatians? The writings of Paul? Paul? What? You're putting Paul on the same level as the Torah? 
Like, get out of here, man. You know, what's wrong with the other? I, 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 I think that they would be appalled, okay? Pun intended, but I think that they would be appalled at the idea that Paul or even, you know, the anonymous author of the Gospel of John is considered to be scripture, although he wrote that like some 60 to 100, some people believe in like 150 years after the fact. Um, and so, yeah, I believe if we went back into those days, in the days of the New Testament and went to one of their meetings and said, hey, that's not in the Bible. They would go, Bible? What are you talking What is a Bible? Well, you know, the Bible. No. What are you talking about Bible? Because there was no there, there, were, there was no such thing as a Bible. They had scrolls and each, you know, each, there was like 24 scrolls made up the, 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 um, the like the, the gist of the Tanakh was made from 24 different scrolls. Each one held its own place of authority and place in, in the culture and, and understanding. And um, each one had maintained its individuality. And that's what we, we've lost all that today in, in this day and age because we put it all together in one book and we call it the Holy Bible and slap the New Testament on the back of it and, you know, and call everything. All of the, all of the scriptures that, that um, the original disciples and that Jesus called scripture we put the label Old Testament on. And I I believe that they would be absolutely livid knowing that. If you go back and talk to James and say, hey, you know what? Oh, that's in the Old Testament. So what, what are you talking? What do you mean that's in the Old Testament? There were like dozens of testaments from Genesis until today. What, te- what do you mean that's in the Old Testament? Well, don't you know? Like Genesis to Malachi is Old I, 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 he'd probably, he'd probably stand up and tear his clothes and protest and fall on his face and, and say, God have mercy on these people. How could they put all these books together and call it the Old Testament? That is a, that's sacrilege. That's blasphemy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we gotta, we really gotta get back to like Jordan, brother Jordan Thomas, or back to the root, right? We got, we actually really gotta think about the history of of the the writings that we now have that are included in the Bible and how that all come about, and what it really meant and what it looked like and what it was like to live in the New Testament church back in, you know, forget about like we're we're like most of the church today. Like 99.9999% of the church today is way downstream, full of pollution, man's pollution. That's why I call it the modern day corrupt Christian narrative. Go upstream, go right upstream, right to the source, go right to the days of Yeshua, go right to the days of the 12 disciples. I think that Christians would be culture shocked if they were to live back in those days. Well, let's go to church. What do you mean go to church? There's no church. What are you talking about church? We are the church. We go to synagogue. That's what they did. Oh, no, we don't go to synagogue. We're Christian. What? Do you, what? We do go to synagogue. We serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We meet in synagogue. And we go to the temple too, by the way. 
And we still do the sacrifices, by the way, too, as we see how they agreed to do that in Acts chapter 21. Until the temple was destroyed, then they stopped doing that because they didn't have a temple to do it. Same with the, with the Jewish people. The Jewish people stopped doing sacrifices for the same reason. I, I encourage every Christian to really think about it, to really think about, number one, what does is, what is, what is the scriptures really say? What I mean by scripture is the Tanakh. I'm not talking about the letters of Paul or, the, or even Revelation or anything like that. I'm talking about the Tanakh. What does that really say? Because that was the scripture. That was the scriptures of the New Testament. That was the scriptures in the book of Acts church. So number one, what do the scriptures really say? Number two, what would it be like to live in those days? There were no churches. I mean, what I mean by that is buildings that they call church or meeting places called church. There were no churches. They met in the synagogue. They met in the, in the temple. They used the Jewish, so-called Jewish scriptures as their text they practiced, actually, they met with and worshiped with and even conversed with and even made decisions with the Pharisees. Acts chapter 15. And so all of these other books that were written, right? Like the letter, the personal letters of Paul that, per, that Paul personally wrote to other people, they weren't even considered at all to be, you know, it's like, oh, well, what, what do I care about what? This guy, you know, this guy here is not even part of the 12. Why do I care about what he writes? Like what he writes is his his business with, with, you know. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, like who even knows for sure who they were? I understand that people today, even scholars even today argue who they actually were. And for the most part, it's believed even by most scholars today that those were not eyewitnesses. They were not eyewitnesses. It's it's commonly believed that Mark was written first, although Mark has a lot of error in it, and I talk about that a lot in my videos. And uh, Matthew, or so-called Matthew, whoever Matthew was, same with Mark, um, used Mark as a template and just kind of added, changed, and you know, explained things differently. Same with Luke. And the Gospel of John is completely different than any of them. Well, I can't say completely. 93% different than the other than all the other gospels. Um, but you know, see, Christians don't really spend much time thinking about these things. They trust their entire they they put all of their trust in in man, in in church tradition. Even Protestants do. Even Protestants actually Protestants do so even more so than Catholics and they don't know it. They deny it, but they know but that's what they do. They put their trust in man and in tra tradition more than Catholics do. Because they put their trust in their Bible canon and they don't understand that their Bible canon was put together by man and church tradition. That's the truth. And they put more emphasis on that product that came from man, at least the compilation thereof came from man, and church tradition, they put more emphasis on that than the Catholics do. And yet they say they don't go by church tradition at all. Well, yeah, they go by church tradition even more than the Catholics do. They trust church tradition, but they don't even know they're trusting church 
church tr- uh, tradition. They think they're trusting God. They say, oh, no, the Holy Spirit did it. And that's that's what I was saying earlier, is that a lot of Christians who don't know what they're talking about, they just they just lump it, they just throw it in the Holy Spirit bag. It's like, oh, well, Holy Spirit put the Bible together. <laughs> How do you know? Well, Holy Spirit had to. Because why would why would God put things in the Bible that that is not right? Well, how do you know that God even put things in the Bible? How do you know God even wanted the Bible to be? Jesus, when he was walking this earth, everything was kept separately. There was no Bible. And he didn't say, hey, this is not God's will. We should, we should make a Bible. We should, here's, here's a list of you know, 66 books or 73 books or 74 books or 81 books, whatever the case is. And this is your Bible. No, not at all. No, he could have written a book himself too, but he didn't. Right. See, he didn't. He doesn't want anybody to worship a book. He, he hates God. Hates bibliolatry, the idolatry of a book, especially a book that is compiled, put together by. Don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about the individual books of the Bible. I'm talking about the Bible, the framework of the Bible canon. I'm talking about which Bible, which books were actually included, versus which books were not included. The whole idea of that idol that has been formed by man. Almost missed this tower time. You didn't have Christopher on there. I would have missed it. But um, the tower time says, um, I have a a couple unspoken prayer requests. If y'all wouldn't um, mind joining in faith that our fathers will be done. And for those concerned to walk into the path he has ordained. Thank you all. Okay. Let's join our brother here in prayer and and pray um, concerning this. Father, we thank you, Father, for this night. Thank you, Father, again, for blessing us with another night of reading scripture and fellowship. Thank you, Father, uh, for bringing us to this place. Thank you, Father, we're able to to watch this and to uh, communicate and interact with each other online. And so... Father, you see uh, the Tower Times request here. You said that it's unspoken prayer request. Um, and we ask you, Father, that you would, you would answer his prayer, that you would look into this situation that he is asking about, that your will be done, Father, for those concerned to walk in the path that you have, that you have ordained. Father, we ask you, Father, you would have mercy in the name of Yeshua. Have mercy, Father, and let your will be done in this situation in the name of Yeshua of Nazareth. Everyone said, Amen and Amen. Yes. Paul says, I'd like to find your statement of doctrines, please. Um, well, I mean, I, I, I've i thought about it. I've actually, I think I used to have like a statement of faith up, faith up on my website before. I'm not sure if I took that down or not, but I was going to take that down just because um, it's not even really scriptural to have a statement of faith, right? You know what I mean? Like, because, and I've got people that, 
that complained about my statement of faith. And my statement of faith was, was very, very typical. It was a typical statement of faith. But people complained like, oh, you left this out or you, you didn't or you, you said this, but you shouldn't have said that. Or, you know, or, you know, you have you don't have the Trinity in it or you don't have enough of the Trinity or you or this or that. Like it's like it gets to the point where it's like my statement of faith is the Tanakh. My statement of faith is that. My my statement of doctrines is this. To believe and to practice exactly how Peter, James, and John did of the 12 disciples. That's, that's it right there. To believe and to practice exactly how the 12 disciples did, especially Peter, James, and John. They're like the top three. But that's it. I mean, that's it's as simple as that. Once I start getting into drafting out a statement of faith, whatever, then people say, "Oh, you forgot that, or you, 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 you know, you should add this." It's like, okay, let me just make it. Let me just make it simple. The way the twelve disciples believed and lived—that's my statement of faith. That's the doctrine right there. First-century Christianity in every church. Going nowhere, ask the question, do you believe people have added to the Bible over time? There's no doubt about it. Yes, they have. Um, put things in there that weren't there originally? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You uh, you listen to some of the, especially well, how many different um, videos we did with Onia when he talks about, and he provides all of his uh, documents that prove that uh, these manuscripts have been changed like the early manuscripts have been changed some of it has been taken you know taken away from some of it has been added to some of it is just really different just like even the numbers are completely different uh, so there's no doubt about it um generally speaking though it has been more whittled down like an idol it's like it, it, the the bible is was bigger back in the, you know, in the fourth century. We know that because of the uh, the Codex Sinaiticus, the oldest Bible on earth today is the Codex Sinaiticus. That had, you know, the, the New Testament of the Codex, uh, Codex Sinaiticus um, had the Shepherd of Hermas and the, and the Epistle of Barnabas in it as well. You know, down through the ages, the those who have printed Bibles decided to leave those out. Um, I mean, at the, be at the beginning, the first Bible like that, it had like it had a lot of the Apocrypha in it. It had some of the it had a lot of books in it that we don't see today. Um, and over time, they took they they widowed out. You know, like the speaking about the Catholic Church, they, I believe it was the Catholic Church who took out the Book of Second Esdras. From what I've read, it was they're the ones that did that. So they whittled that away, and then the Protestants come along and whittled away, you know, the Book of Tobin and the, and the Maccabees and all this other stuff, and whittled away all that stuff. And then, you know, it, you know, the Shepherd of Hermas was taken out, the, the Epistle of Barnabas was taken out, and all this kind of stuff. And things were added to many of these New Testament books, um, as we just discussed. Uh, so yeah, it has been uh, changed. 
dramatically over time. There's no doubt about it. No doubt about it, especially in the New Testament. And again, I believe the reason why the New Testament suffered so many changes is because of the fact is it wasn't viewed as holy word of God when it was first written. It wasn't until much, much later in his, well, how many decades or over a hundred years, a couple hundred years later, then finally it was considered to be like holy scripture included in the, in the you know, um, uh, in the canon, so to speak, of the New Testament. So, yeah, there was lots of things. Going nowhere says, who do you think the Nephilim were? I believe the Nephilim is, to, to the best of my understanding, were the giants of Genesis chapter 6, which were the hybrid breeds of the fallen angels with, with humans. Now, this is kind of a deep subject. I'll, I'll touch on this, but this is a very deep subject as well. What does it mean when it says that Jesus became sin, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21? Now, once again, this is Paul, so um, take it with a grain of salt. But, you know, so when you got these books like Paul's letters and the Gospel of John, I always say this, Paul's letters and the Gospel of John, um, you got this kind of Christology, okay, where it's like Christ became sin or Christ became a snake, like how basically um, John chapter three, right, where uh, Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the son of man will be lifted up. So he likened himself to a serpent on the cross. Um, Paul kind of took that kind of, the same kind of concept in saying that Yeshua became sin for us or Jesus became sin for us, became like a serpent, a serpent, uh, the serpent being symbolic of sin. Um, but you can, you can take that in a good way. You can say, you know, when Yeshua was on that cross, he became sin. He was a serpent. And when he died, you identify with that. You say there, my sin dies. My old sinful self dies. When he rose from when he rose from the dead, you, you know you rise with him in newness of in newness of life, and and therefore you live according to the will and the commandments of God, right? So um, you live you live a new life in in line with the Torah, right? So that's the best way to to apply or to to um, to interpret that. Going nowhere, what does it mean that uh, Isaac was sporting with Rebecca? Without looking into the actual context itself, I would say it's like that they were um, playful in that sense, romantically playful, I would think. Fearfully Confident says, Shalom, brother. 
Shalom, fearfully confident. Good to see you. I see we got a question here. Is Romans 9.33. Let's go on over there. Romans 9.33. A contradiction of Isaiah 28.16. Romans 9.33. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Um, 28.16. So that would be... They got referenced here, Isaiah 8.14 and 28.16. So we got 28.16. Let's just go over there. Isaiah 28.16. I always say, and I still say and believe, that if I quoted Scripture like Paul did, I'd be thrown out. I'd I'd be treated worse than I am now. Um, Because Paul Paul misquoted and mixed up Scripture more than anybody else I know. Uh, so 28 verse 16 says, therefore, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion a a foundation stone. Okay. Let's just, um, let's think about how to do this. He that believe, behold, I lay in Zion a foundation for a foundation, a stone. See, I lay in Zion a stone. Okay. So it doesn't say about foundation. A tried stone, a precious cornerstone. Uh, doesn't say about that either. A sure foundation. So he doesn't say about that either. Right. Um, he that believes shall not make haste. Okay, so let's just check out different Bibles. Whoever believes will not act hastily. NLT says, whoever believes need never be shaken. Greek version reads, look, I am placing a stone in the foundation of Jerusalem, literally Zion, a precious cornerstone for its foundation, chosen for great honor. Anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. So how did one who believes will never be put to shame? Um, and so they also believe that it, it, Paul is mixing Isaiah 8, 14 in this as well. So Isaiah 8, 14 is, and he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of, of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel for for a jinn and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So yeah, I mean this is this is typical of Paul in the way how he mixes up verses. <laughs> I still got to think. I mean, man, if I ever quoted quoted scripture like Paul did, I'd be yeah, these people would have me, you know, they'd be they'd be they'd be a lot worse than they are with me. Um so See, Paul makes it look like he's quoting Isaiah 28, 16. Um, and he mixes it with Isaiah 8, 14. I would say, on, I would say it, it doesn't, 
it seems misleading that he quotes it all together like this because it's not all together like that. He obviously he chops it up and mixes it up. It certainly isn't accurate. And it certainly isn't an accurate quote. Uh, as far as a contradiction, uh, I at this point in time, I don't know if, if I would say a contradiction. It certainly is it's an, it's an inaccurate quote. It's a mixed quote. It's misleading quote. As far as a contradiction, I'd have to I'd have to look deeper into it and say, okay, what exactly is this stone that Isaiah is talking about? And is it the same stone that he talks about earlier on? Which I I cannot yeah, I it would take more in looking into to really to really come up with a, a definitive answer on whether it's a contradiction. Your other your other quote is the other reference is Romans 10, 6 to 8. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. Okay, so the best way for me to do this, let me just, so Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. This is the original scripture. The original scripture says, for this commandment which I command you this day is not hidden from you, neither is it, is it far off. It is not in heaven that that you should say, who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it down to us that we may hear it and do it. Uh, see now, Paul, a- again, being, being Paul, he misquoted it. He said, it says, quote, do not say in your heart who will ascend in heaven. It doesn't say that. Again, this is a misquote from Paul. Uh, that is to say, that bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you; it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. So obviously, this is again Paul misquoted it, and he he more or less paraphrased it, and he he conveniently left out the key point here he conveniently left out the point where it says that we may hear it and do it right so romans 10 6 says do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven period that is to bring christ down so he he just quotes this part and then he leaves out the rest he leaves out the whole thing about so he quotes that first part then he quotes this second part down here and then he quotes this part, uh, which is the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart. But he leaves out, he, he conveniently leaves out the whole thing about that you may do it. You may do it. You may do it. He leaves that out. In every verse, he leaves that out. He Again, he cuts it up. Um, doesn't quote it. Again, it's misleading how it's quoted. So again, is this a contradiction? Well, I would not say, I mean, there's a, it, it is different and it's a misquote and it's misleading. Now, is it a contradiction? 
I don't see a clear contradiction here. I know people might say, what? Don't you see? No. I, I Let me just say this. A contradiction would be like this. Say in your heart, go up to heaven, where it really says, who shall go up for us into heaven and bring it down to us? Uh, or, you know, if he says something blatantly opposite to what it says here, opposite, um, then it would be a contradiction. Now, somebody might say, well, he says that is to bring Christ down in brackets. Now, again, well, so how do you, uh, it depends on how you interpret this, because some people interpret, well, that Christ is the word of God or the law of God, that you're to bring down the law of God, you're to bring, you're to bring down the word of God. Um, so who is, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring down, bring the word down, okay? Bring Christ down, bring the law down. Um, so, yeah, I would not say this is a contradiction. I wouldn't go out and say it's a contradiction. But again, I would say very it is very clearly it's misleading. Makes it look like he that 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 Deuteronomy says that word for word but it doesn't. And he leaves out the most important point that you may do it. Um and so I guess you would say not telling the whole truth as opposed to blatantly contradicting the truth. He's just not telling the whole truth, if you know what I mean. So I want to be very careful in calling a contradiction. If it says like how how we said earlier, for example, um, you know, if it says, for example, in one gospel that there was only one woman at the tomb, as a, in another gospel, it says there were three women at the tomb. Well, that's a contradiction because it says in the other one, there's only one. Um, or that one in Mark, right? Mark chapter 2 verses 1 Samuel chapter 12, I believe it is, where it's like, it says that uh, Mark said Abiathar was high priest in the days of David when he went into the temple and ate the showbread. But 1 Samuel says it was Ahimelech that was high priest. So that's a contradiction. That's a clear contradiction. It's something that it, it's obviously, it it there's no way you can you can make it work. It's it it says something that's opposite to the other. It depends on how you interpret this. If you interpret Christ as not being the Word of God or not being representing of the Torah, then yes, you could say that's that could be a contradiction. It depends on how you interpret it. If you interpret Christ as being the Word of God or being a representation of the Torah, then that's not a contradiction. Very different, misleading, misquoting, yes, but I wouldn't call it a contradiction. Like, for example, um, if a witness in court says there was only one car at the intersection and it was a black car, and another witness says there were five cars at the intersection and one black car. Is that a contradiction? Yeah, this is a contradiction. But you could make it work by saying, well, the guy said there's one black car. Well, there's only one black car. I guess it was one black car. Uh, which, you know, he didn't say there weren't other cars that were other colors. Uh, but if, if one person said there was only one car and it was a black car, and the other person said there was only one car and it was a white car, yes. Clear contradiction there, right? Clear contradiction. And like how we've read many times before, 
comparing the Gospels or comparing First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings with First and Second Chronicles. There are numbers that are way off. That's a contradiction, clear contradiction. But I want I don't want to I don't want to take two things that are completely different and say that it's a contradiction, because it's possible for it to be completely different and not to be a contradiction. Okay, um, time is getting on here. I'm, I'll take a few more and we'll wrap it up. Let me see what we got here. Going Nowhere says, why, why do you think God created humans? Because... Because um, he enjoys uh, his create, he enjoy for for his glory. I mean, ultimately, it's for his glory. But um, he created humans to be in relationship with him, right? He created humans to enjoy him and for him to enjoy them. Um, yeah, so that's why I think he created humans. It's all for his glory and for his purposes. So Fearfully Confident says, uh, Paul calls it a stumbling stone and Yah calls it a precious stone. So in Isaiah 28, Isaiah 28, verse 16, yeah, it's very, very similar. Lay in Zion a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believes shall not, shall not make haste. Oh, wait a second. What happened there? Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, even the Lord, I'll show this here. Even the Lord, behold, I lay for the foundations of Zion a costly stone, a choice, a cornerstone, a precious stone for its foundations. And he that believes on him shall by no means be ashamed. Yeah, so uh, it says a precious stone here, whereas Paul quoted. Um, a stumbling stone, but it, you know, it does say in Isaiah chapter eight, verse 14, a stone for stumbling, a rock of offense. So it just comes back to like, you know, again, just a deeper study. Is this stone the, the same stone that is spoken of in Isaiah chapter 28? Uh, if it is, then it's, it it's, I guess you could say what Paul said was at, was true. However, again, misleading quote, misquoted. Um, it all depends because obviously Paul mixed the two verses together. So it still could, it still could, it, it's possible that it's not a contradiction because you could, somebody could argue that it is the same stone that Isaiah is talking about in, in, in chapter 8, verses 28. And that this, the precious cornerstone is the stone of stumbling. Someone could argue that. Um, so that's why I, I want to be very careful not to say that it's a con to say it's a contradiction if it's not a clear contradiction. Certainly is different. Going nowhere 
It says, do you think some things in the Bible should be taken symbolically or metaphorically instead of literally? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, we talk about that quite often. All right, guys, it's getting late here. I want to wrap it up. And so tomorrow we will continue. Again, tomorrow is going to be a very, very special reading as well. It is going to be, uh, let me just do a quick preview here. Tomorrow we're going to be reading from 1 Kings chapter 22 and 2 Chronicles chapter 18, amongst other things. Um, 1 Kings chapter 22, awesome, awesome story of Micaiah. Again, Micaiah is just absolutely, it's an awesome story and I love it. There's a great, great lesson to be learned there. And so we'll talk about that tomorrow. All right, guys. Again, thank you. Thank you for your questions and your comments. One quick more. I see someone here on, on TikTok. I haven't even paid attention much to TikTok here, but uh, forgive my ignorance, but is he saying that all Christianity is wrong? Um, depends on how you define the word Christianity. Much of today's church mainstream Christianity, much of it is wrong. I'm not saying that everything is. Much of it is. Um, but the Christianity, true, what I would call true Christianity, which is the Christianity that we read about in the book of Acts, or the Christianity that Yeshua, that Jesus himself practiced, if you want to call it Christianity, or Peter, James, and John. Uh, as I said, of the 12 disciples, Peter, James, and John was the closest to Jesus. And so the so-called Christianity that they practice, I have no problem with whatsoever. I'm not saying that any of it is wrong. But what they practice, what they practiced is a whole lot different than what most people practice today. And that's one thing that I talk about a lot is how far the, the, the church has fallen. All right, guys, that's it for tonight. Those of you who are uh, interested in getting into like, uh, the questions that... Um, I know there's lots and lots of chat, lots and lots of uh, chat there in the live chat, especially over there on YouTube. Um, if you guys have questions that you want to ask or um, other questions like that, please come back tomorrow night. Tomorrow night, that is at 7 p.m. Eastern, we'll be back and uh, reading some more scripture and answering more questions and fellowshipping some more. So uh, if you can... Please join us again tomorrow night at 7 p.m. Eastern. Thank you for the like over there on Podbean, Elizabeth. Yes, make sure that you, if you're not subscribed, if you're not following, make sure you subscribe and follow. Uh, and make sure you got those notifications on because we do we do go, li go live every day and not always the same time every day. On Saturdays, we go live at 2 p.m. Sometimes we go live on an off time, like 1 p.m. or something like that on Sunday. I know we did that, I think, once anyway. And uh, we may do that again sometime soon if we if we have a guest that at, uh, uh, you know that has a an opening for that time. I kind of leave that as a potential time for a guest to come on. So uh, so keep that in mind. Make sure you come back tomorrow night, and we will pick up where we left off tonight and answering your questions and your comments. And so thanks again, you guys. Blessings multiplied, you guys. Thanks again for your questions and your comments and your fellowship. You guys are awesome. As I always say, you guys are awesome. For those of you on TikTok, I am live streaming simultaneously on TikTok if you, or on YouTube, excuse me. If you don't have me on YouTube, make sure you go over to YouTube and, and uh, get me over there. 
It's, it's Christopher Enoch on YouTube. The link to it is in my TikTok bio. All right, guys. Thanks again. Vinny says, thank you, Christopher. God bless everyone. Shalom. Thank you, Vinny. God bless you more. Tiyabi the Glory says, have a good night, everyone, and shalom. You too. Will Sr. says, good night, everyone. Shalom. And Going Nowhere says, whether I'm sad or not, your streams always bring me joy and healing. Thank you so much for doing this every day. I'm grateful for you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for your questions and your comments. I appreciate you. Yeah, you bring us you bring us joy as well and healing as well. Uh, we're all part of the same body, so we need one another. We need one another. Love for Yah three over there on TikTok says Shalom. I'm just actually wrapping up. So um, hopefully, hopefully you guys you can uh, can join me tomorrow night. Uh, tomorrow night at 7 p.m. Eastern, we're going to pick up where we left off, reading the scripture and more fellowship. It's going to be awesome. Don't miss it. All right, guys. Until then, as always, I pray the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you, lift up his countenance upon you and give you wonderful, wonderful shalom. Amen. Amen. See you tomorrow night.